When they brought me the news, I had three liras in my pocket. I had eleven people, my mother, two sisters, their husbands and children living with me and dependent on me. I had no lasts, no tools, no leathers and no credit. Ironically, or perhaps aptly, it was American Independence Day, the 4th of July. Italy was sunk in economic depression. Florence, in normal times, alive with tourists, at this time of year, was empty. Unemployed men lounged at street corners, hungry and hopeless. There were scarcely a dozen taxi cabs in the whole city, and the open four-wheeled carriages which in happier days had clip-clopped in leisurely state along the narrow streets and across the wide squares stood idle and empty on their ranks. I walked to the Via Manelli. My factory was closed, and a great seal lay upon the door, forbidding entrance. My eyes filled with tears. This had been my workshop for more than five years. From this place had gone beautiful work, beautiful shoes which had sold and sold. It was not the fault of my shoes that I had gone bankrupt, nor the fault of my principles. Six men and a woman stood grouped on the sidewalk, a few of the younger workers whom I had trained. They came to me sympathetically. Please don't cry, they said. Never mind all this, Signor Ferragamo. We are terribly sorry for what has happened. We want to go on working for you. You have taught us, and we can't work in any way but yours. Can you take us somewhere where we can start work again? I looked at them. Yes, they too, no less than my kinsfolk, were my dependents. I was overwhelmed, yet what could I do? I was astute. The law forbade a bankrupt to engage in trade. I knew few people in Florence who might help me. I'd been too busy to cultivate a social life, and I had no customers in Italy. My name in the world at large might be good. In my own country, I was virtually unknown. It was absurd to consider that I could do anything for them or much for myself. And then I thought, but is it absurd? Was it perhaps possible if my spirits began to rise? No, I was not astute. I had these work people faithful to me. I had my hands and my brain. People the world over had wanted my shoes and I could make shoes again if only I could raise a little money and a few orders just to start. As for the law, the law could go hang. The bankruptcy had taken everything, but it could not take away my knowledge of shoes. Still, we would need a place to work. Slowly, I led my seven followers towards the place I now call home. My mind busy pondering, darting, scheming. It was midsummer, I reminded myself. The weather was good and would remain good for months yet. There was a courtyard at my home, open to the sun and the sky. But it would serve us as a workshop until the cooler weather returned. And by that time, with God's help and our own skill, there would be money for a roof. I looked around the courtyard. I said, we'll start work here tomorrow. Come back in the morning. They nodded and smiled and shook hands and went away. As I lay on my bed in my room during that night of decision, I understood many things. When the blow had first fallen, I had been numbed and bewildered. How could they do this to me, I thought. I am succeeding. Every day my shoes are better, my sales are better, my orders are larger. They cannot make me bankrupt, yet I was bankrupt. Then, in an instant, as a blurred film comes swiftly into focus, I understood my own errors and the folly of the world. I knew that I had always been a shoemaker and never a businessman. I had never understood my associates' constant demands for money. I had not immediately understood the motives of the usurers in foreclosing. Why should they do these things? It was crazy. They gained nothing by it. I was not a worse shoemaker with money to finance my operations. I was much better, much more efficient. I was not a worse shoemaker two days before my bankruptcy than I was two years before. I was better. As a bankrupt, I was not more able to meet my obligations. I was legally debarred from meeting them. The men to whom I owed money would not have a better but a worse chance of being paid in full. So why, why, why had they done this thing to me? Had they no confidence in me? I told myself the answer. No, they had no confidence in me. 
The world of business, I now realised, assembling the evidence, was a vast confidence trick. The job of a business was to make money and pay the dividends to stockholders. I did not want to pay dividends until the business was properly established in the way I wanted it established. Most businesses arranged their output to cope with present and future orders. I rejected orders I could not fulfil or supplied only a tenth of the demand and at the same time obstinately refused to make any arrangements to increase that output by the use of machines, using a reason valid for myself but apparently incomprehensible to others. In Florence there were other reasons for my downfall. I had made no outward show. I owned no great house with no huge factory. A place to sleep and a place to work were sufficient for my needs. I did not seek the social world which I considered time wasted when I could be making shoes. Commercially, I was unknown in my own country, even to begin with, an alien there. Now my naturalization had lapsed with the passage of three years' residence in the land of my origin, but probably many people did not realize it. Outside Italy, my shoes might be on the feet of film stars and diplomats, the wives and daughters of rich businessmen, peeresses and princesses, but in Italy, only a few who shopped abroad ever saw them. Now that I no longer took custom work, they did not come to my factory. The bulk of the Italian nobility and high society did not wear my shoes and so could not bring fame to me and confidence to my supporters. Then, too, I had been less concerned than I should over executive details. Let me make shoes and I was happy. Give me executive work and I felt it was valuable time taken from the task I was called to do. I had allowed an incompetent man to be installed to run the business for me and so contributed in that particular to my failure. As my tumbling thoughts reached this point, I suddenly found that I could no longer think about the past, but only the future. I lay in bed, staring out the window at the warm night. I saw the future clear and bright. I had no fear of it, only confidence. The dream I had cherished in Hollywood in 1927, of Ferragamo shoes spreading all over the world, of Ferragamo shops and Ferragamo retail outlets in all of the major countries of the civilized world, was not a hopeless mirage, but a practical possibility. I would start again, and this time I would not fail. What was past was past. The shadows of these sorrows illuminated. They did not darken the shape of what was to come. The past was useful for its lessons, and they would not be forgotten. But the future beckoned. In those hours I made many decisions. I decided once again that no machine would ever touch a Ferragamo original. That was the cardinal, the overriding principle. No machines. I would repay every penny claimed against me, and when I was again solvent, I would never beg for outside capital. I would finance myself entirely. If other people could not understand my principles or believe in the efficacy of my methods, I must go alone. Never again would I wholly abandon custom work. No matter how huge my business might grow, I would always be at the disposal of people who needed my individual skill and attention. Never again would I depend wholly on exports for my sales. My own country must buy at least half of my output. If it was necessary to establish confidence in others through material possessions, I would acquire material possessions. Why not? I had to live somewhere and I had to work somewhere. I might as well own them. One day, I would buy a big house and run my business from a beautiful salon to which the fashionable women of the world should drive. If the world insisted on the outward trappings of brilliance, the world could have them. Then, perhaps, I would be allowed to make shoes without these continual interferences these continual humiliations, these continual frustrations. Most important of all, I would be able to make my shoes in my own way. I need never compromise, nor need I fight others to try and convince them I was right. This was indeed my day of independence. So when my men presented themselves for work in the morning, I knew what I had to do. First, there were orders. 
In the night time I had recalled one man in Florence, an elderly gentleman, with whom I had been friendly. I reckoned him intelligent and sympathetic. I would go to him and solicit work. He surely would not fail me. I left the boys waiting in the courtyard and went to this man's home. When he saw me, he knew already what had happened, for it had been reported in the morning newspapers. He greeted me with, I must have a heart-to-heart talk with you. We sat in his lounge, he offered me a coffee, and when we were settled, he said, Now, Salvatore, I have one thing to tell you. I have always reckoned you a brilliant fellow, but now I must ask you one thing. What in the world made you come to Florence or Italy to do this work? I can't tell you, I said. I feel I had to come here. I can tell you nothing more than you already know. The story of my life in Hollywood, of my job, of my instinct for making shoes. Then will you listen for once to a good friend of yours, he pleaded. Because you know, Salvatore, my family and I like you. You have been our friend since you have been in Florence. We like you as we like our brother. To prove that I reciprocate your feelings, I can only say that the first door I knocked on was your own. There is nobody else I value as I do you, I said. Then, if you think I have done something with my life, will you listen to some advice? Well, of course you have done something with your life. Look at your position. Of course I will listen to your advice. Well then, he said, can you still go back to America? Yes, I said, I have my passport still with me. Then, Salvatore, do me a favor. Find out which is the first boat that leaves Italy for America and you go back on that boat. Get out of here. This is no place for you. This is a place that has given you nothing but sorrow and distress and hardship and hard work. How many times have I seen you rushing from right to left, trying to pay your men, trying to fulfill your obligations? One thing after another has burst on you. Since you have been back here, you have had so many troubles. Why in the world don't you go back? Why have you insisted on going on? My dear friend, I said, perhaps you are right to tell me to go. I wish I could follow your advice, but I can't. I must stay here. It's a feeling within me. I can't explain it. I only know I cannot go back. How can I go back to a place where they have thought so much of me, where they have given so much publicity and loved so much of the work I've been doing? How can I go back as a failure? I simply cannot do that. Listen, Salvatore, you cut that out, he said sharply. This sentimental stuff is no good. You must listen to a man who is so much older than you. Go back, and if you ever want to return to Italy, make plenty of money first. Then come back and do this work and be independent. I shook my head. No, no, no. That I can't do. I came here to solicit work from you. Not much work. All I want is that you should help me by giving me the order for a few pairs of shoes that your family need. Even if they don't need them just now, they may not need them until the autumn, ready for winter. But let me make them now when I need the work. I have some working people, and I told him the story. They are waiting for me. I must go back with some work. I cannot go back and tell them I am leaving for America on the next boat. It can't be done. Neither have I the means to take them with me to America. No, Salvatore, he said. I'll give you no help of that sort because I know it will only prolong your agony and your hardship. If you stay here any longer, you are going to have lots more trouble. You have only just gone bankrupt. I'm sure they'll find a lot of things that are irregular. Even if they don't, nevertheless, you'll have a lot of trouble. If you are sensible, I will help you because you are an honest fellow and you will eventually repay me. I will pay for your trip to America and can give you money for expenses. But that is all that a good friend can give you. I will not give you any help that will make it harder for you in the future. I want to keep my friendship with you, but that's all I'll do. Give you a ticket and open my pocketbook for you. I hesitated. 
for a moment the offer tempted me. Then I shook my head. I'm sorry, I said. I really am sorry. I don't care what's going to happen to me. I don't care what the world might think. I can see quite clearly ahead of me, and I must stay right here. I don't care if I'm going to have a much harder time. I'm going to stand it. Suffering I may go through, but I'm going to complete what I came here to do. Won't you please help me? Won't you let me just make a few pairs of shoes? No, Salvatore. That's only an illusion you have. Let me tell you frankly, you are full of optimism and ambition and dreams, but they are so far away that to get there you will suffer even worse than in the past. That may be true, I said stubbornly, but I can't run away. I simply can't. So just let me make a few pairs of shoes, maybe a couple of pairs, and if you want to help me, you just have to lend me the little money I need to buy the materials. I have to buy the lasts. I have to go and buy the small tools. Will you help me? He gestured in despair. Oh, Salvatore, can't you see? You did not even think of this hard moment. You knew that you were going through hardships. You must have known that bankruptcy was inevitable. So why didn't you keep some lasts and tools in your home or give them to your friends to keep for you? Then you would have been equipped to start again. This single fact tells me how simple you are. You can't think of bad things. This talk is useless, I said patiently. My boys are waiting for me to bring them work. It's no use crying over what has occurred. Simple I may be, but I am not going to betray my feelings. I feel that I should stay here and I am going to stay here. I cannot think of anything else. So if you cannot help me, I must go and knock on someone else's door. No, Salvatore, you mustn't knock on other doors, because when those doors are open to you and they give you help, it only means that you are going to suffer the more. I won't let you fall into that trap. All I want you to do is think over what I have told you, and quickly, for worse things can happen to you at almost any time, and then it will be too late. The legal procedure has to take its course, and if you give it time to start, you won't be allowed to leave the country. Think it over and quick. Find out which boat you can take and come back to me and let me know. I said, I'm so sorry you don't listen to my view, but I shall have to go now because I have to do something. Oh, don't be crazy, he said. I rose and said goodbye. We shook hands and parted on good terms, but I could stand the talking no longer. I was getting no work and my men were waiting. I stood outside his house, hesitating. Where next could I go? Then I remembered the lady in Florence, Signora Favi, the wife of the owner of the newspaper La Nazione, who, in common with a few other Italian signore, had been to my factory and implored me to make shoes for her. Signora Favi had bought my shoes at Saks Fifth Avenue in New York. Others had bought them in London, Paris, and the United States. All had wanted me to make them again in Florence. I had told them all that I did not now undertake custom work and, in fact, was not equipped for it. I went straight to Signora Favi, and she was delighted when I told her I could again make her shoes. She immediately ordered three pairs. Then I had to tell her my sad story. I explained that I had no money to start to make shoes and that I needed, not alone, that, that she should advance me some money against the cost of the shoes. Furthermore, I would be glad of the addresses of any friends of hers in Florence who might like to have shoes made, even if they were not for immediate use. Signora Favi advanced me 150 liras, 50 liras per pair, and gave me the names of two friends who she was positive would need shoes. I rushed back to my small group of shoemakers, waiting patiently in the courtyard. I gave one 50 liras to go and buy the last and the tools we did not possess. A second I gave 50 liras to buy the materials, and a third I gave the remaining 50 liras to buy whatever other things were necessary. They went on their ways. They went on their ways, and I went to see the other two friends of my first new customer, and won more orders. On the second day after they closed my factory, I was working again. 
At two o'clock in the afternoon, we started to cut the first pair of shoes and my new life had begun. The mind may wish to concentrate on the future, but the past clings cruelly onto the coattails. Each day I rose, full of ambition, eager for work. Day after day, the word would come. You are required for examination in bankruptcy. I was torn away from my work for hours, to stand in the court listing inventories, checking inventories, answering questions, rebuting allegations, facing judge, debtors and creditors, feeling humiliated, degraded, as if I were a criminal. A few days after I had restarted work, I ran into my friend. He asked me how I was getting on, and I told him they would not leave me in peace to work. He shook his head sadly. My dear boy, this is nothing, he said. Wait until they get through with you. You would not follow my advice and you will be sorry. I said stubbornly, if I am to be in trouble, I'll work out my trouble. Troubles are of all kinds, Salvatore, he said, but your troubles are the sort of which you can never work out and come through with pride. Italy is different from America. You have lived in a country where it does not matter how often a man may go down, he can get up again. Here, once you are down, you have no chance of rising again. You stay down. The difficulties you are experiencing are as nothing to those that will come. He was right. My troubles in bankruptcy went from bad to worse. My debtors disappeared and my creditors increased, making my liabilities appear worse than they actually were. Debtors denied my claims or argued that their liabilities were much less than those shown on the face of the credit notes. Others went further and accused me of forging the amounts of the credits in the company's books. They alleged that I had demanded payment in cash instead of by cheque, so that I could salt the money away from the bankruptcy proceedings, and meanwhile left the debt standing in the firm's books. Among my debtors was a shoe retail shop in Amsterdam, to which I delivered merchandise against these credit drafts. When the drafts became due for settlement after the bankruptcy, the owner of the shop naturally felt that it would be a waste of money to pay. It would be good money down the drain. He went as far as to approach the Italian consulate in Amsterdam and say, Look what an Italian citizen is doing. This man Salvatore Ferragamo is trying to get money from me illegally. He admitted that it was true that he had signed the drafts, but he said he knew Ferragamo only as a friend. His friend Ferragamo had asked him, as a favour, to give the signed drafts in advance of delivery of the goods. Now Ferragamo was bankrupt and the merchandise could not be sent against the drafts, so naturally he wasn't going to pay for stuff he had not received just because he had been trying to help a friend. It was, of course, the time of Mussolini's regime, and with all its good and all its bad, it laid down one straightforward policy. Italian citizens must behave themselves in all their transactions, especially in those abroad. In this case, as a bankrupt with my credit and my standing gone, it was assumed that I was in the wrong. The consulate interfered in the bankruptcy proceedings, telling the judge that the drafts were valueless because the goods had not been delivered. I produced the documents, all the invoices and the dispatch notes, everything, but they meant nothing. The judge refused to hear anything about them. Ferragamo was a rogue. That was plain. So the troubles poured on me and the bankruptcy proceedings, always protracted, became prolonged. There was no more trust of me. I had to pay cash for every scrap of material, every track, every pot of glue. I could not even obtain the price of a meal on credit. Yet there was always one bright spot. My work was gaining momentum every day. If I could not work in the daytime because I was facing the bankruptcy examinations well... There were the nights and early mornings before others were at work. I have never counted the hours I have worked each day and now I counted them less and less. I had a future to make, a future clear of debt, with assets behind me, confidence restored, my good name clear of stain, and, above all, my beautiful shoes going all over Italy and all over the world in fulfilment of the dream I had cherished for so many years. 
Therefore I bore as stoically as I could the lies of my slanderers and drew comfort from the steadily rising volume of work. During the first few months I repeated the approach I had made to Signora Favi and her friends. I knocked from door to door of the villas of the wealthy, soliciting their orders. When the shoes were on their feet and they had expressed themselves pleased, I would explain. You know the great trouble that has come upon me. Now I am trying to recover myself. If you are satisfied with my work, would you please tell me the names of any of your friends who would like shoes? They never failed to respond. Signora Favi, a noble and good woman, and many of the other signore went to great lengths to help. Not content with giving me names and addresses, they would telephone their friends, urging them to buy my shoes, or they would show them off at parties, praising my workmanship and the comfort of my shoes. Even my bankruptcy was not wholly bad, for out of the publicity my name became known throughout the country, and people who had heard of my reputation abroad, learning that I was working again in Italy, came to see me. My business steadily improved, my working force began to rise, and by the winter of 1933 matters had so far improved that my seven employees had grown to more than a dozen, and I was able to move them from the cold courtyard to the premises in the Via Tornabuoni. As I was forbidden by law to trade, the shop was officially in the name of a sister, but I knew that the polite fiction would not hold water under any strict scrutiny, and I kept myself as far as possible out of sight. I worked in a back room, small, uncomfortable, and airless. When it was essential for me to appear in the shop, I kept a wary eye open for anyone who looked like a policeman. Once, during a sale, organised to attract attention, a big man thrust his way through the queue of people outside the shop and into the salon. I was fitting a woman's shoes when I saw him. I dropped her foot, darted into the back of the premises and made my way next door, where I waited until news was brought that it was all right. He had nothing to do with the police. Despite my precautions, my creditors complained to the court, and I was hauled before the judge. He threatened me with imprisonment unless I stopped this trading, but when I argued that I had to work, to eat, and shoemaking was the only job I knew, he let me go. Though not without some hard hints about what would happen if I were found guilty of infringing the majesty of the law. To me, the law seemed silly, so I ignored it. By the end of 1933, I was able to afford the services of a carriage to take me to and from lunch. It was a great convenience. I had a long way to walk, and it could hardly be called an extravagant since Pietro, the driver, charged me only two liras at the time when there were 93 liras to the pound and 19 to the dollar. For the equivalent of less than a sixpence or six cents, he drove me home, waited for me and drove me back. Although there were so many mouths to feed at home, I could not let him wait hungry, so we would send him out a bowl of spaghetti or other pasta or some meat or whatever we were having. Poor Pietro, I remember that when, as now and then occurred, I had to use a hired car for appearance's sake and I told him that I would not need him that day. He assumed that his fee was too high. He would say, you don't need to pay me all that money, Signor Ferragamo, I can do it for less. One day I was serving a wealthy American lady whose Rolls Royce stood at the curb. She kept me late and Pietro arrived at the appointed time, drawing his carriage up alongside the Rolls. The customer said at last, realizing the time, Mr. Ferragamo, I am keeping you terribly late for your lunch. I'll tell my chauffeur to drive you home. I thanked her but said no. I had to get back afterwards, whereupon she offered me the car for the entire lunchtime break. I gestured to Pietro and the horse-drawn carriage. Thank you, madam, I said, but my own rose has arrived. She was horrified. Surely you do not ride in an open carriage in this weather, she asked. It was still winter. She was horrified. Surely you do not ride in an open carriage in this weather, she asked. It was still winter. I confessed I did. I am bankrupt, I said, and I cannot afford anything else. Then certainly you must take the car, she said. I wouldn't dream of allowing you to ride in that. 
I explained gently that Pietro depended on my two liras a day. He is one of the lucky ones, I said. He at least has one regular client each day. She listed the details of Pietro's earnings with horror. When I had finished, she said, Call him in. As the awkward Pietro stood before her, she said to me, Tell him this rug is for him, and this. She handed me a thick, expensive travelling rug from the car and a dollar bill. I told Pietro. He stepped back, shaking his head. I will take the money, for that is useful, he said. But the rug is too good for the horse. It was a long time before he could be persuaded to accept the rug for himself. Pietro died young, leaving a widow and one small son. A year or two later, his widow came to see me in great distress, though now I owned a car and no longer needed to call on Pietro's services. She and the boy had been left astute, and she appealed to me for help. I gave her work in my organisation and helped towards the cost of the boy's education. He is now an engineer with a good position, and his mother is working for me still. During 1934, I began to breathe again, financially. From time to time, I saw the face of a little money, and at ever-increasing intervals, I was able to buy credits, in full, from the people who claimed against me in the bankruptcy. By the early months of 1935, my position had so far improved that I was able to move my quarters to a better building where my work people, now totaling 50, would have more fresh air and light. Here I could receive the customers for personally fitted shoes, as well as increase my general production. By the end of 1935, I had acquired still more credits. Each time I bought one, I put away the legal receipt, treasuring it as another step away from the shadows of the past. The bankruptcy proceedings were still going on, and looked like continuing for many years unless I could end them. Also in 1935, I managed to reopen my export business with a few lines of shoes. By the early months of 1936, my trade at home was in full boom, and my exports, though still small, were regular and increasing. Once again, I moved into bigger and lighter quarters, renting work rooms upstairs and a salon on the ground floor of the Palazzo Ferroni Spini, one of the oldest and most beautiful palaces in Florence. Here I installed a proper laboratory for my research and equipped myself even better than before my bankruptcy. My course to the future seemed once more set fair, but I had reckoned without the consequences of international politics. Mussolini's Ethiopian adventure, launched in 1935, was still dragging on, and in 1936 the League of Nations imposed its policy of sanctions. In one stroke my growing export trade was killed. Consignments of shoes awaiting shipment were never loaded, orders on their way through the factory had to be cancelled, and orders booked but not yet put in hand worth many thousands of liras were wiped out. Although my exports were not yet as large as I could have wished, the sanctions were a serious blow. I could ill afford the loss of a single lira, and, though the demand for my shoes in Italy was greater than I could supply, many hundreds of pairs designed with overseas tastes in mind were unfashionable in my country and therefore unlikely to sell. Nevertheless, I had to try. The shipments were recalled and the styles most suitable for Italy were dispatched to retailers throughout the country. Those styles, in process of manufacture for export which could be altered in the time, were changed. The models left on my hands I was forced to store against the day when the overseas markets would be free again, and in the hope that fashion would not have outstripped my designs. Then, when I had decided that I had survived the blow, worse followed. The top-grade materials on which I had depended disappeared from the market, and I was forced to improvise. Out of that improvisation came two of my most successful ideas, inspired by a box of chocolates and a lump of Sardinian cork.